Thanks for tuning into the Refuge Church Sermon Podcast. It's our prayer that the Spirit would use God's Word to stir your affections for Christ during this time. While we're glad to provide this online content, please remember that it's not intended to replace commitment and connection within a local church family. Now, here's this week's message. Good morning. So for the, those of you that don't know me, my name is Joel. I'm one of the elders or pastors here at Refuge, and I'm excited to be up here uh, sharing God's Word with you this morning. It doesn't happen too often, and it's always exciting when I get the opportunity. So this morning, we're going to be finishing up our, seri- our Advent series. And for those of you that don't know, Advent is a season of the church calendar. It's actually the first season of the church calendar, and it's the season of anticipation and waiting and longing and expecting Christ to come. We're waiting for Christmas Day. Um, I love the church calendar as an aside. It's an easy way for us as a church people and family to be tracking through time, to have yearly rhythms that we go through together. Um, There's a lot of different ways that we track time, whether it just be the calendar year or the fiscal year, whether it be the, the educational year starting in September, going through you know, to, to May. There's lots of different ways that we track time, but as a church and as a people of God, to have the church calendar as a way and a reminder that this is what's important, we're looking to Christ throughout the year, I just think it's really helpful. So, all that to say, I'm really excited that it's Advent. We're starting the church year again. And so Advent is this time, like I said, where we're anticipating Jesus coming into the world. We're looking to him What is God doing? How does God enter in? What is happening? And it's this time of longing and expectation, specifically tied to what God did in the Old Testament and how he prophesied what was going to come, this big thing that he was going to do. So for Advent specifically this year, our sermon series, like like was mentioned before, We're going through and we're seeing how Jesus fulfills these Old Testament offices. And by offices, we simply mean roles within the society or or chief roles within the people of God in the Old Testament. So the first week, Trey went through and he talked about how Jesus fulfills the role of prophet of the Lord, where Jesus proclaims what God has said, where Jesus proclaims the word of God and is the mouthpiece of God. It's what a prophet was in the Old Testament. Then last week, Darden went through, and he talked about how Jesus is our high priest, how Jesus goes before God on behalf of his people, offering sacrifices to make us right before God, to atone for our sin and our rebellion. Um, And it goes a little bit deeper than that, where Jesus is not only high priest offering the sacrifice, but he himself is also the sacrifice given before God to make us right with him. And then this week, we're going to be talking about the office of king, how Jesus is the high king, the one who rules and reigns with all authority, guiding and governing his people well. So my hope is that after today, you have an idea, one, of of kind of what these offices or roles are, but ultimately, that you're looking forward to and anticipating Jesus coming into the world this Friday as we celebrate Christmas, but also you long and anticipate for Jesus' second coming when he sets all things right, 
when he truly finishes the establishment and consummation of his kingdom at the end of time. So with that, let me pray for us and we'll dive in. Father God, we thank you that you are good and gracious and loving toward us, your people. We thank you that you have given us your word. We thank you that you have opened up your mouth. You've given us prophets and priests and kings to guide the way to you. I pray that this morning as we look at Jesus, who is our king and our Lord, that spirit, you will work in our minds helping us understand more of what this means for our own lives. But I also pray that, Spirit, as we do that, as we see what it means for Jesus to be king over our lives, I pray that you also work in our hearts, drawing our affections toward you so that we will love you more. I pray this because Jesus is our high priest who has offered himself for us. It's in his name we pray. Amen. So, We're talking about how Jesus fulfills this office of king. And to really understand this, to really understand any of these offices that we're talking about, any of these roles that we're talking about, we really have to understand the Old Testament narrative. And there's a whole bunch there. For for those of you that may not be very familiar with the Bible, the Old Testament fills out about two-thirds of the Bible. The last third is is the New Testament kind of what we're probably more familiar with. And so there's a whole bunch of stuff that's going on in the Old Testament. There's a whole bunch about how God is forming a people for himself, how he's setting up laws and structure, how he's organizing the Israelite society. There's just a whole bunch there. And so this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to track through a good portion of the Old Testament. Very high level, I promise. I I promise to try and keep it Uh, keep from us getting down into the weeds too much. But we have to really understand what's going on in the Old Testament to understand what it means for Jesus to be king. We can say Jesus is king or Jesus is Lord, but what does that actually mean when we're trying to understand it in the context of who God is and what he's done? So as a side note, last week I talked with Trey about uh, his sermon on Jesus being the prophet of the Lord and he said he felt like the majority of his sermon was, was a lecture, just giving a whole bunch of information. Um, and I feel, I understand that. Uh, for, for everyone who's listening in, I uh, apologize in advance. My sermon's probably going to feel a, a lot of the same way. Um, it's probably going to feel similar. There's going to be a lot of information here. Uh, we're going to be talking a lot about the story of God, what he's done, the nation of Israel, We have to orient ourselves, like I said, in the Old Testament narrative, but I promise, close to the end, I will bring it home, okay? So so you can hold me to that, and um, I'll also give you that cue, so if you kind of start to nod off, it's okay, I'll give you the cue, I'll let you know, okay, we're coming home, we're coming to your neighborhood later on in the sermon, okay? So with that, let's start off with an overview of what's going on in the Old Testament, What's going on in the narrative? What is God doing? So we're going to start off by talking about this guy named Abraham. So Abraham, some of us may be familiar with him. Abraham is the start, really, of the people of God as a nation, as a select people. What God did was he said to Abraham, I'm taking you 
out of your homeland, out of your father's household, and I'm going to take you into a promised land. So Abraham gets up with his household, leaves his father's household, and travels and trusts in God. And eventually, God makes a covenant with Abraham. That word's a little strange to us. By covenant, what I mean is God makes a, a promise of faithfulness to Abraham, that Abraham will be a, a father of a great multitude, and that these people will inherit, inherit the land that God is bringing them to. So this is the start of the nation of Israel, a people group that will be living under God's rule and authority, under God's kingship in this world. And it's important to note that this wasn't just for Abraham to enjoy these blessings and Abraham's family to enjoy these blessings and Abraham's descendants to enjoy these blessings, but God also says that Abraham and the nation coming from him is going to be a blessing to the whole world. So with Abraham, really what's going on is God setting himself up as God and king over Abraham and his people, and he promises to give them land, a nation, an identity, and that they will be a blessing to the whole world. So that's Abraham. Then after Abraham comes Isaac, his son, and then Jacob. Jacob is, give, is the one who's given the name Israel. He wrestles with an angel, gets this blessing, is named Israel, and that's where the name Israel for the people of Israel comes from. And then Jacob, Israel, has 12 sons. The second youngest is Joseph. This is Joseph of the amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat variety, if you, if you follow where I'm going. So Joseph, through a series of events, gets sold off into slavery, ends up in Egypt, eventually works his way up through the system, and becomes second only to Pharaoh himself. And so Joseph is there in Egypt. He pulls what he eventually brings his family down into Egypt to live there after there's a, a large famine. And under Joseph's leadership, his family thrives in the land of Egypt. Eventually, the people of Israel are growing and multiplying, and eventually, the, the Pharaoh of Egypt gets a little scared of all these Israelites living in his land, and slowly but surely, they become enslaved peoples in the land of Egypt. And so this is the part of the story where we see God intervening. The people of God cry out. They say, they say to their king, to their God, we're in slavery, we're in bondage, we need to be rescued, we need to be redeemed. And so God, being king over them, sends Moses. So Moses is the first great prophet of the Lord. And you probably, hopefully you've seen the Ten Commandments. If you haven't, Charlton Heston, great, do it. <laughs> it's, that, it's that iconic line of, you know, let my people go. And you're like, yes, so great. So, so we have Moses leading the people of God out of the land of Egypt and then leading them to Mount Sinai. And this is really significant. So Moses, in leading the people of God to Mount Sinai, what he's doing is he's bringing the people of God to the place where God is enthroned. And what he's doing is he's setting up the people of God to make a covenant with God to form them as a true nation. So before, 
in the covenant with Abraham, what was really going on is God is saying, I'm going to make, make a nation out of you. And here, God is establishing that nation in a significant way. God is giving them the Ten Commandments. He's giving them his law. This is how you are to live as a society, as a people, as a nation. And through, the, through these laws and how you live before me, you're going to be a light to the nations, a blessing to the world. And so this is significant. Moses is leading the people to form a nation. So Moses dies. I know. Like I said, it's a long narrative. Moses dies, and the people of Israel eventually enter into the, into the promised land under, under the leadership of Joshua. They conquer this land that was promised through Abraham, the, co- the covenant of Abraham, and they settle down finally in the land to enjoy God's blessing. And as they're, as they're enjoying God's blessing and his kingship and lordship over them, they're to be a blessing to the nations as well. So at this point in the story of Israel, God has fulfilled his promise of land, and he's going to use the people of Israel as a nation, as his covenant people, as, as his subjects, as being king over them, to bless the nations. So that's where we're, that's where we're at at this point. And at this point, what God is doing is something interesting. So the the time period here is still full of sin, still full of corruption. But what God is doing is he's acting as king and lord over his people during this time of the judges. So during this time period, what happens is when an invader comes in and tries to attack the people of Israel, or when there's big problems Uh, injustice in the land, what God does is he raises up a judge. And this judge is a temporary leader of the people of Israel. God sends his spirit on them, blesses them, and this judge either leads the armies into battle to, to fight off invaders, travels around and executes justice, determining what is the law and who is in the right and who is in the wrong. But it's It's this temporary office of a judge that's going through and leading the people of Israel. And this is significant. God is still acting as king, but he's raising up people to lead when there's there's a need. And so the people are still under God's kingship, his authority, and yet he's providing and caring for them as it should be. So at the end of this period, period of the judges, Samuel comes, Samuel becomes a prophet of the Lord. So this is recounted in kind of first and second Samuel. And he, he speaks what the Lord is telling him to say. So he's going throughout the land. He's also judging the land. He's, he's, also, he's both a prophet and a judge in the land. And one day, the leaders of the land come in and talk with him, and they say, listen, Samuel, this has been great and all, you know, God being king over us, but... We're done with it. What we really want is we want to be like all the other nations because all the other nations are really cool and awesome. And so what we really want is a human king to be ruling and reigning over us as opposed to God being ruling and reigning over us. And uh, Samuel is, is a little distraught because what's happening here is the people are rejecting God as their rightful king. Instead, they're saying, we would be a lot better off with a human king. And so, and so what God is, is doing is he's saying, okay, if this is what the people want, then this is what the people will get. 
Samuel goes through and he tries to convince the leaders, like, this is a really bad idea because you think that a king is going to protect you. You think a king is going to save you from invaders. You think this king is going to bring prestige and honor to us as a nation, but that's not the case. Really what kings do is they tax you heavily, take what is yours. What They also take your husbands and your sons to go off and war for war and conquer foreign lands that you don't care about. They also are more concerned with their own glory and their own prestige, and so they're going to lord it over you. You don't want kings, but people, once again, they're like, no, we're pretty sure we know what we want. We're pretty sure this is the best idea. And so God says, like I said, give them what they want. Go ahead, set up a king. And so the first king of Israel is anointed. Saul becomes the first king of Israel. Okay, pausing the narrative for a second. Put it on the shelf. We'll come back to it in a second. I just used an interesting word. We've used, we used it in a few of the songs this morning. It's this word anointed or anoint. That word, I would say, is pretty strange to us as a society. We don't generally go around anointing people. So when we use the term anoint, what we're really talking about is God declaring that someone is going to fulfill a specific office. And here, and generally when we see it throughout Scripture or when we sing about it, we're talking about God anointing or preparing or setting up a king. So what Samuel does is he takes a horn of oil, a flask of oil, and he pours it over Saul's head. And the image here is God sending his spirit onto Saul to prepare him to lead the people of God in the way of God. So this is the idea of anointing. Later on, when we talk about the term Messiah, another term that we sang about this morning, really that term is translated as the anointed one or the anointed one of God. So really, Whenever we're talking about anointing or Messiah, we're talking about kingship, authority, leading the people of God. So, unpause the narrative, take it back off the shelf. So, Saul is anointed as the first king of Israel. Sadly, things don't go well. To put it, to put it uh, concisely, it doesn't go well. Saul is king over the people of Israel, and he doesn't do a good job in leading the people toward God, to focus them as a nation on God. He tries to usurp, usurp some of the other offices. He tries to offer sacrifices before God. And God's like, no, I think I'm done with you. And so God rejects Saul from kingship. He removes Saul as king. And he sends Samuel to go ahead and anoint a new king. And this king is the king that all the history of Israel will always point back to. This is King David of the David and Goliath variety. So David is accounted a man after God's own heart. But we also have to recognize as we look through the story that David is far from perfect. David is a man of passion but even in following after God he's not a man of true integrity. We see this famously in the story of David and Bathsheba, where David commits adultery with Bathsheba, and then he goes and has her husband Uriah killed 
because he wants to try and cover it up. And then he marries Bathsheba and he thinks all is going to be well. But God calls him out through the prophet Nathan and devastation comes upon the nation of Israel because the king is supposed to be leading the people rightly in loving and serving the Lord. And David's just done something heinous in the eyes of God and the nation suffers for it. So David, not a perfect guy at all, but he is the, he is the one that the people of Israel will continue to look back to and say, we hope that we have another king like David. And there's something even more important about David and his kingship than just him being kind of the focal point of the people of Israel. God makes a special covenant with David, another special promise. He made a covenant with Abraham for for children and land and blessing and he makes a new covenant with David. We actually read, read it a little bit this morning already. So I'm going, to, I'm going to read it again for us. So this is from 2 Samuel chapter 7. So this is Nathan the prophet going in to talk with David. And he says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off, Cut off all your enemies from before you. David was a mighty warrior. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them, promise of land, so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies, Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house, not brick and mortar timber, that he's talking about a lineage, descendants. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever." I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. This passage is really interesting. Because really what's happening in Nathan proclaiming this as the word of the Lord is that God is declaring a new covenant, a covenant with David. But in this covenant, there are some, some strange elements at work. When we look closely at this, really what we see happening is an interweaving of both temporal things right now in the present and future prophecy, future prophecy coming through. So the immediate element here is actually referencing Solomon, David's son, who's going to be king after him. When we, when we look at this, you know, God talks about building, building a temple, building a house. Um, God talks about um, Solomon being a son before him, and we see that language being used as as we see the story of Solomon kind of unfolding, we see that Solomon is going to be disciplined by God. He, once again, is not a perfect king. 
he definitely disobeys God and strays from God and that he will be disciplined by God. But we see here that from Solomon, he will have a household, a line of kings that will come from him. So like that all makes sense. And if you were there as a person in Israel at the time of this, you would say, and kind of as Solomon becomes king, you would say, okay, makes sense. I gotcha. I'm tracking with you. But there's more that's going on here. What's happening is God is declaring an eternal or a future coming king. So let's look at this real quick. Let's look at some of these, some of these passages. So he says to David in, at the end of verse 11, Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. He's going to make you descendants, people that will come from your line. And once you die... I'm going to raise up for you um, an offspring. That word offspring is kind of weird because it's, the word, it's actually the word seed in Hebrew. It's this idea of either singular or plural. So I'm going to raise up for you seed. I'm going to raise up for you offspring that are going to come from your household. It makes sense from an from a in-the-moment perspective. I'm going to make, give you descendants. But it's also singular in saying that there is one that is going to be coming who will be the ultimate king of your lineage. We also see more of this going on in here. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever, in verse 13. So yes, Solomon is going to actually build a temple to the Lord, but that term house, like I said, can mean descendants and family. And that's ultimately what's going to happen through this prophecy is that Jesus, the coming king, spoiler alert, is going to be the one who establishes the family and people of God as the true Israel. We also see that this kingdom, this kingship is going to be established forever. It's not something that's going away. So David's line will ultimately be kicked off the throne and the people will ultimately, eventually, long for the coming coming king, someone to come back again. But here we see that his throne and his kingdom, this seed that is coming, will be established forever. It's not going to go away, and it's going to be there to stay for all time. We also see this idea that, that God's steadfast love will remain. It will, ne- will not depart from this chosen one. And so we see in this declaration from Nathan, from God, that in this covenant, God is doing something both immediate and in the future. And so, when the people of God eventually get kicked out of Israel, we'll come to this, and when people of God eventually get kicked out of the kingdom of Judah, they're going to long, they're going to look back to this prophecy and say, "Hmm, I wonder when God is going to do that. I wonder when that's going to become true. So, after David comes, like I said, Solomon. Eventually, the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah divide. They become two separate kingdoms. And over the course of time, in the southern kingdom of of Judah, there are a handful of good kings that follow after God. There are almost no kings ever recorded in the northern kingdom that follow after God. And the majority of the kings in the southern kingdom don't follow after God either. And so, the king... The one over these nations of God 
who's supposed to be ruling and reigning with authority and justice, pointing the people to God, leading them back to him, protecting and providing, caring for God's people, is not doing his job. Over and over and over again, in the books of Kings and Chronicles, we see the kings failing over and over again to bring and lead the people toward God. Yet, even in the midst of all this failure, failure to execute justice, failure to lead the people well, God says his covenant with David will continue. The line of kings will continue. Even in terms of the temporal nature, the people of God coming, if you remember back, the people of God came to Samuel and said, we want a human king, we want him to protect him, protect us, we want him to fight our battles for us, we want him to protect our nation. The kings after Solomon aren't able to do that. So even the hope for a human king was, was a failure. Israel wanted someone to lead them in war, and the kings had to go out to foreign nations to find security and protection. And it's kind of this strange contrast where the people of God really wanted a human king, and yet God, during the period of judges, when God was rightly established as the king over his people and bringing up judges to protect them, was always caring for them, always providing, protecting them as a nation and as a people whenever there were foreign invaders. And here, once we see, once we get to these kings that the people wanted, they're not even able to protect themselves as a nation. God's people, when we get to this point in the story, what they seem to need is a true king. Like I said before, they start to point back to David. When we we get to the prophets, they start to say, hey, do you remember that covenant that God made with, with David, our forefather? It's happening. It's going to come. Hold out hope. Wait for that day. The king is coming. As the people long for a king to save and protect them, we see these glimpses over and over and over again of what God is going to do one day. So listen to this passage from Isaiah. This is a familiar Advent passage for us as we're saying, we can't wait for Christmas. But it's a, it's a passage of hope and of promise to the people of God while they are beset on all sides by enemies attacking them. This is what Isaiah prophesies. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. Remember, this is future looking. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. He's going to be a king. And the name... 
And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This prophecy is looking forward to one that is going to come. And when this one comes, when the true king of Israel arrives, he will set up the nation as it should be. The people will see light, meaning that they will see the way of the Lord. They will have joy and blessing and provision. They won't have any more nations attacking them or oppressors. They will be able to enjoy the goodness of God because he will be destroying all of their enemies. And he's going to do it through one who is coming, a child who is going to be born, a son who is going to be given. If you remember back to the Davidic covenant, that term son, a son of God. And the government will be on his shoulders. He will be the true and right king, ruling and reigning with justice. His name will be Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Those names are names for God himself, And so while the the human kings fail, God is saying, I'm going to do something strange. I'm going to do something weird, something that you wouldn't have expected. I myself am going to come and be the true king as I was meant to be. This This prophecy is looking forward to the coming one. The people of Israel, the people of Judah, are conquered and exiled. They're taken away from the land of promise and blessing that was given or promised through Abraham. And so throughout their exile, it's passages like this that they're clinging to for hope and assurance that one day God is going to set all of this right. One day the Messiah, the true king, will come and reestablish God's kingdom here on earth. So fast forward. We're in the Roman Empire. Things are still not looking very good for the Jewish people. They are oppressed by the Romans. They're under the Roman, Roman rulers and authorities. They're taxed heavily. They don't see... Uh, the kingdom of God that they were promised. And they are longing and waiting and anticipating this Messiah who has been declared, who has been prophesied. The one of the lineage of David who will be the anointed king who will once again restore the fortunes of Israel. Surely when he arrives, and hopefully it'll be soon, surely he's going to throw off all the foreign powers. He's going to set up Israel as a national powerhouse again, and they're going, to, they're going to take over the world, right? This is the setting that we come to for the first Christmas. This is the setting into which Jesus is born. And when we look at Jesus' life and ministry, it's anything but what the people of God expected we see a different type of king coming forward. The people of Israel were, were expecting a mighty warrior 
who is going to come and throw off the shackles of their oppressors. But instead, what we see is a meek and lowly servant who has come, left his kingship, set aside his throne to serve, to love, to care for, and to ultimately set up the people, the household of David, bringing in all the nations. This is the king who came. Looks a lot different than what the people of Israel expected. But once again, God is in the business of doing what people don't really expect to bring about his purposes. Through this coming, through Jesus, God with us, Emmanuel, the Messiah, the anointed high king of Israel, God reestablishes his kingdom here on earth. This is the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting father, the prince of peace, God with us, the true king over all kings. And this is what we mean when we say Jesus fulfills the office of king. This is what we're talking about when we're in the season of Advent looking forward to Christ's coming on Christmas. We're waiting and longing for Jesus' arrival, the baby king of the line of David, but also the arrival of God, the great king, the one who will reestablish his kingdom with power, but a power that's different than worldly power. He reasserts God's kingship over all creation through his suffering, his death, and his resurrection. As Christians, Advent and Christmas aren't just about what happened 2,000 years ago, though. We as Christians also look forward and eagerly anticipate the day when God will set all things right through Jesus' second coming. We long and hope for the ultimate Christmas in which Jesus returns, and that time in power and in glory and in majesty as our true king. I promised that I would tell you when I get to your neighborhood. I'm here. In, the se- in this season, this year, during Advent, um, I've spent a lot of time reflecting on what does it mean for Jesus to be king today? What does it mean for us to trust in Jesus as king? This year has looked a lot different than I'm pretty sure any of us anticipated come last Christmas. With the pandemic, life's just kind of been thrown to the wolves, I would say. We've seen sickness and death at a scale that we pretty much haven't seen in our lives before and probably won't see in our lives after this. But personally, a lot of us, especially as I've been talking to you guys throughout the year, have been struggling with loneliness and depression from our isolation from one another. This year has been hard. And many of us have been wrestling with depression and anxiety and despair. 
And it's been difficult to navigate these waters. This is not as it's supposed to be. This is not how God intended our world to be. And I think that this year of all years, the brokenness in this world is especially poignant. And it's in this season of Advent that we see ourselves and our brokenness and the brokenness in the world, we see it honestly. And I think this season of Advent, for me, when I look back on my whole life, is the season in which I've longed for God to come back, for Jesus to come back, to reign as the true king, to establish fully and consummate his kingdom. I think this is I think this is the most poignant Advent season of my life. And so, what I want to say, and what I want to encourage you with is this. That this season of Advent, and as we move into the season of Christmas, as it looks different than what we would expect or hope for for our families and gathering with friends, long for the true King to come. Wait with bated breath. Long for Jesus to come back and set all things right. Because that is really our true hope, that our king will come again, and all the sickness and death and despair will be wiped away. It's exciting that we're able to actually open up our Bibles and see what the last page is, what Jesus' return as king will look like. And so this comes from Revelation at the very end of the story. We see this. John writes, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for their former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne, the high king, said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. During this season of Advent and on into the Christmas season, this is our hope. That though the world is as it is right now, One day, all things will be set right when Jesus, our king, the king, true king of the line of David, returns. But he's not just the king king of the line of David. He is the God king, the one who will recreate and remake and renew all things. So I encourage you, let this be our hope. Let this be our longing this waiting for our king to come. And let us trust in him and his good kingship during this season.
Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that you are king, that you are Lord, and that we can trust you to be the good and gracious king. As we look at entering into the season of Christmas, enjoying time with friends and family, whatever that looks like this year, I pray that we will also look to you with hope and longing and expectation for Jesus to return as king. I pray that as we open presents, as we see Christmas trees, as we drink eggnog, as we enjoy the goodness of this season, that there will also be a longing within us that something, something still needs to happen. The kingdom needs to be consummated. We want to see Jesus ruling and reigning with authority. We praise you and we thank you that he inaugurated his kingdom through his life, death, and resurrection, and we hope and long for his second coming. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This week, we focus on Jesus' role as king. The centuries leading up to his birth had been filled with eager anticipation of a new king, greater even than King David, who would rule his people with justice and who would subdue all enemies. And in the fullness of time, he came, this great king. But the way he came, the life he led, and especially the death he died caused so many to miss it but a king he was and is. With the Virgin Mary, we could hear that the king has come and that his rule will never end. Luke 1, verses 26 through 38. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, Therefore, the child to be born will be called holy, the son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. 
and the angel departed from her. We light these candles with the assurance that our king has come and will assuredly come again. Let us pray. O God of Elizabeth and Mary, you visited your servants with the news of the world's redemption in the coming of the Savior. Make our hearts leap with joy and fill our mouths with songs of praise, that we may announce glad tidings of peace and welcome Jesus the King in our midst. Holy, Holy Father, Father, you have given us the sign of your love through the gift of Jesus Christ, our Savior, our King, who was promised from ages past. We believe, as Joseph did the message of your presence, whispered by an angel, and offer our prayers for your world, confident of your care and mercy for all creation. Ever faithful God, through prophets and angels, you promised to raise up a holy child who would establish a kingdom of peace and justice. Open our hearts to receive your son, that we may open our doors to welcome all the people as sisters and brothers and establish your kingdom in our time. Amen. Amen. Building our identity in Christ for the sake of the world. That's the mission of Refuge Church. For more information, visit us online at seekrefuge.net.